Before we get to our text, let me ask you a question. What is your aim in life? What are your goals? What are you striving to achieve? It's probably a question that's not new to many of us. Um, But whether you're young or you're old in this room, I want you to ask yourself, take some time, what is my aim? What am I striving to achieve in life? You see, we all have goals. We have career goals. We have financial goals. We have health goals. We even have family goals. And those goals can change depending on what stage of life you're in. Goals are good to have. It's good to strive to achieve something. My hope today is that we will see that the Bible calls for us to have a specific aim in life, a specific goal. And it calls us to a goal that is more valuable than all other goals. It causes us to an aim in life that shapes everything that we do, everything that we think of. And it's a goal that will bring you and I unending joy. And that goal is found in the exhortation of Paul in Philippians 1.27. An exhortation is defined as a communication emphatically urging someone to do something. And that is what Paul is going to do for us this morning. When I thought about what to preach for you and, and not knowing any of you, not knowing where you are in life with the Lord, what you know about God, how close you are to Him, I thought that I would preach on one of the most impactful verses for my life. Um, years ago, when I was digging through the Word, I ran across the letter of Philippians and And this verse really redirected my life. God used it to show me something that really has brought more joy than I could have ever imagined. And so I want to share that with you. So look together with me at Philippians 1.27 and let us hear the word of God and Paul urge us towards a specific aim for our lives. Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what I want to do, and if you like to follow points, um, we're going to... Break this down into two sections. We're going to first observe the exhortation itself. What is Paul urging us to do? And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to observe how to live out this exhortation. How do we do this, Paul? So the exhortation is found in verse 27, right at the beginning. It's short and it's sweet, but boy, it packs a punch. Paul says, only let your manner of life Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is one of those statements in the Bible that we can read and we can easily glaze over and we can move on to the next words. But if you really stop and you let it sink in, you can feel its strength. It's simple. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
that that is a strong and powerful exhortation. Paul actually starts this exhortation in a radical way. He places the word only in an emphatic position. He's essentially telling this church, there is one essential thing that I want to urge you to do. Only one thing. His design is to draw us in so that we lean into his word and we say, what is that, Paul? Now, before we do that, I think there's a few things that we need to know about this church in Philippi. First, we need to know that the church in Philippi was a thriving church. It was a church that was doing well in the Lord. I've always been struck by the beginning of this letter because of how Paul begins it. Look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Paul thanks God, and he prays with joy every time he remembers this church. The letter of Philippians is probably written about 10 years after he planted the church in Philippi. And every time he remembers them, every time he sits down to think about them and to pray for them, He prays with joy for them, and he thanks God. He actually calls them his joy and his crown in chapter 4, verse 1. This church is his prized possession, so to speak. And he tells us why he feels this way about them. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Beloved, this is a thriving church. It's a church that had a great partnership in the gospel. I don't have time, but if you want to, go back and study what this church did. You can look in Acts 16. Oh, man, I lost it. 2 Corinthians 8. It's all over the place. This church was doing wonderful things for the Lord. So we need to know that this was a thriving church that Paul is giving this exhortation to. We need to know something else. We also need to know that this church was experiencing suffering because of gospel proclamation. We know this because of the end of chapter 1. In verses 29 through 30, Paul tells them not to be alarmed by their opposition because the conflict that they are facing is the same that they have seen in him and now here to be in him and that it has been granted to them by Christ. So while we don't know their exact sufferings, we can assume that it's probably prison sentences. It's probably people deliberately seeking to harm them. Because that's what Paul talks about in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, that's going on in his life. So we can see that the church in Philippi was a thriving church that was facing suffering and persecution. Now, with that understand, look again at this exhortation. Paul says at the beginning of verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The original Greek carries a very specific connotation here. Paul uses one Greek verb that we have translated, let your manner of life. That whole five Words right there is one Greek verb. 
And at its root, it means to behave as a citizen. The idea that Paul has in mind is a a Roman polis, which was a city-state or a free state of Rome. And Paul is is telling this church, he's saying, conduct yourselves in a way that is proper behavior as citizens. And now the choosing of this word is purposeful. It would have struck a chord in their minds because, you see, in the Roman world, there was very strong political formations, and cities like Philippi would have been called Roman colonies or little Romes. So if you lived in Philippi, you were a Roman citizen. And that was a big thing. But what exactly does it mean to be a Roman citizen, a citizen of a polis? That's where it gets interesting. Because a polis was more than just a place to live. You see, people viewed their polis as a partnership with other citizens to obtain the highest good for the society. Everyone used their talents for the good of the society. So you see that Paul's using this word purposefully because it would have struck a chord for them. And they would be thinking, only behave as citizens. Now the question then is, What is this state that Paul is talking about? Because it's not Rome. What is the common thread that binds this citizenship together? Look again at the beginning of verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of what? The gospel of Christ. The gospel rules this state that Paul is talking about. The citizenship that he's calling for them to conduct themselves worthy of is the citizenship of heaven. The one that all in Christ belong to. It's no longer the Roman polis. It's heaven. And heaven's theme is the gospel. We see it in the book of Revelation. Everyone before the throne crying out, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And beloved, what is the gospel? The gospel is good news. It is good news. It is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the righteous one, suffered and died for the sins of his people. But that in three days he rose again victorious, triumph, so that there would be no condemnation for all who believe in him, but instead everlasting joy, basking in the glory of God. That is the good news of the gospel. That's what gathers us today if we're believers in this room. Christ died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And Paul is saying that is what should rule our lives. Everything that we do, everything that we say, all of our conduct should be in a manner worthy of this gospel. So he's saying, stop. Stop for a moment and think. Search your heart and search your mind. Is your life worthy of the gospel? Now, this exhortation makes two things clear, right? There's a way to live that's worthy of the gospel, and there's a way to live that's not worthy of the gospel. 
And since the gospel is meant for our everlasting joy, not living worthy of the gospel means we're robbing ourselves of joy. We're robbing ourselves of what is best. That's what God showed me years ago. That's what I want you to see this morning. And the good news is that Paul doesn't leave us to ponder and think, well, what does it mean to live out the gospel, to be worthy of the gospel? He gives us clarity in the same verse. He continues in the middle of verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. You see, that's our clue. That's our clue to stop and pay attention. Paul, what are you about to say? What do you want to see? Or what do you want to hear about this church that's going to show you that they're living in a manner worthy of the gospel? So let's consider what he says then. I see two ways that he talks about living lives worthy of the gospel. The first is through a unified standing for the faith. Of the gospel. Look again at verse 27. Paul says that a life lived worthy of the gospel means that he may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind for the faith of the gospel. To stand firm means to be immovable. The idea is a soldier planted that will not move his post. We're supposed to think of that Roman soldier that digs his heels in the ground, puts his shield right in front of him, and will not move. It's a defensive position. Paul is saying that we should stand firm. Stand firm. But what are we resisting? We're resisting the attacks of an enemy. We're resisting the attacks of Satan. We're resisting attacks against the gospel of Christ. We're resisting sin that entangles and robs us of joy. And did you notice how he says to stand firm? Look again at verse 27. He says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. You see, the spirit in the Greek language is the seat of understanding. And the soul or the mind is the will. And notice that Paul is not talking to the individual here. He's speaking to the church collectively. So the imagery that we had of the Roman soldier expands. It's no longer that one man stand planted. It's the line with some with their shields in front and some with their shields overhead, protecting everyone around them so that no one can penetrate. Paul is saying that we are supposed to stand firmly together unified in our understanding of the gospel and in our passion for the gospel. You see, this means that you and I should not only commit ourselves to understanding the gospel for ourselves, but that we should commit our lives to helping those around us understand and pursue the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, Grace Church, is the heartbeat of this church the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you standing firm together for the faith of the gospel? Paul is saying this is what a life lived worthy of the gospel looks like. 
It looks like we're unwavering in our commitment to the glory of Christ. It looks like we are together guarding each other's faith, strengthening faith, prodding faith along, keeping each other from the attacks of the enemy. So the first way that we see how to live a life worthy of the gospel is through a unified standing for the faith of the gospel. The second way is at the end of verse 27, and it's a unified striving for the faith of the gospel. Look again at what Paul says he wants to hear of them. He says he wants to hear that they are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, there's two things that we can consider about this challenge. One is that Paul wants us to strive. The term that he employs is sunatleo. You can hear the English word athlete in there. So the idea is that he wants them to picture an athlete striving for a goal. I'll give you a little bit more about myself. Anyone who comes to know me for longer than 10 minutes knows that I love American college football. Um, and I, I love it because there's just such a passion in uh, young guys' lives as they're pursuing that goal. College football players have one goal in mind when they accept a scholarship at a university. And that is to be the best at their position and to get drafted in the National Football League. So what's amazing is they train year-round. They expend their bodies to reach that goal. The best ones watch film obsessively. They analyze every aspect of the game. They go to camps. They meet with trainers, skilled in perfecting their particular skill set. And they do this for that goal. You see, that's the idea Paul wants us to see when we see striving. He wants us to be like athletes, dedicating and sacrificing time and effort to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. But there's a second aspect to this. He says we are to strive side by side. You see, he wants us to know that striving is not accomplished on your own. We need each other. We need ironing, sharpening iron. We need someone to lift us up when we are in the murk of life and to point us to the promises of God and to prod us along and to strive together with us. That's what the church does. The church comes along and labors together for the faith of the gospel. That's why Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not neglect to meet together. We need each other. Now, have you noticed the central themes of the exhortation? It's the gospel, which is the glory of Christ, and it's the unity of the church. Paul's exhortation is plural. He says, conduct yourselves. And then as he shows how, he mentions being one spirit together, striving side by side. Unity, unity, unity. You see, Paul is saying, live lives together that are worthy of the gospel of Christ through a unified standing and a striving for the faith 
of the gospel. So if you're like me, you're, you're thinking in your mind, okay, that's what we're called to do. How do we achieve this? How do we achieve this and how do we maintain this at Grace Church for years to come? Well, I think Paul gives the answer to that in chapter 2. So move just a little further and look with me at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. Paul writes, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Did you notice how these verses are connected to the previous ones? Paul mentions again, that he wants them to be of the same mind. He wants them to have the same love. To be of full accord and of one mind. Unity, again, is his concern. And did you notice what precedes that unity in verse 1? He says these things are done in light of encouragement in Christ. Comfort in love. Participation in the spirit, affection, and sympathy. Paul poses these things in the form of a rhetorical question. So if there is any, and beloved, if you're in Christ, you scream out, of course there is. We have so much encouragement in Christ. We have so much comfort from love. We have the Spirit of God set in our hearts. Of course there's affection and there's sympathy. So he says, strive then. Stand together. Strive for the faith of the gospel. You see, unity of the church happens through shared affections for Christ. The more we grow in our affections and our love for Christ, the more we will be concerned for others in this room. That's what achieves unity. That's what maintains unity. As our eyes are focused on Christ, our hearts and our hands and our minds are focused on the body of Christ. And we start to do things like verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You see how the gospel begins to shape that? If you're living for the sake of the gospel, you're not living for your own ambition. And then we do verses 3 and 4. We start to look out for the interest of others. We consider them more important than ourselves. Shared affections for Christ cause us to be concerned about others. If there's one thing I could leave you with, whether I ever see you again in life, it's to live lives worthy of the gospel. It's to be a people filled with minds and hearts that care for one another. This will change everything. We will stand together. We will strive together. 
If you are filled with hearts and minds that long to see others see and savor Jesus Christ, your life will change. Marriages will be stronger when each spouse loves Christ and looks out for the interests of the other spouse. Families and friendships are stronger when there is more care about others seeing Christ than there is about our ambition. If the gospel and the joy in Christ takes precedence in our life, it will radically transform us. It'll transform this church. It'll transform Abu Dhabi. Now let's get specific for a moment. And this is what I love every time I talk to Steve because I know that you guys do this. So it's really an exhortation to press in more. But what is one way to fuel our affections for Christ and to unify our hearts together? It's prayer. When we pray together and we pray for each other, we will unify our hearts and our minds on affections for Christ. Praying promises over each other when we're struggling in faith. Praying for the Spirit to come and cause affections to grow for Christ. Prayer is one of the most glorious privileges that we have in this life. Can, can you? It baffles me sometimes. The, the God of the entire world, the creator of everything, the one that spoke light into existence, allows us to pray to him, allows us to speak with him, to ask him for things. And he's generous, and he answers, and he gives. Prayer is something that I long to be known for. Something that I'm growing in. Let me tell you a story about a man named Art Weens, who attended college with um, the missionary Jim Elliott, if you know of who that is. So one year, Jim Elliott organized a campus round-the-clock prayer cycle that had a student pray for a missions movement during every 15-minute slot. One of the students there was named Art Weens. And he was moved during that week to pray systematically through the college directory, praying for 10 students by name every day. And he followed this throughout his college years. About 25 years later, a man named David Howard tells a story about when he ran into Art Weens at a conference. And when they were meeting and they were talking, Art asked David if he recalled the great times of prayer that they used to have. They talk a little further, and then Art says to David, he says, you know, Dave, I'm still praying for 500 of our college contemporaries who are now on the mission field. Art proceeded to tell David that he keeps in touch with the alumni office. He found out who was going to be a missionary. He started to pray for them for years and years and years. Dave was so astounded, he asked to see the prayer journal, the prayer list, so the next day, Art walks in with his battered old notebook that he had started in college with the names of hundreds of his classmates and their fellow students listed out. Prayers, prayers, prayers. You see, prayer kept Art's mind on those he was standing with and striving side by side together with for the faith of the gospel. 
That's just one way. It's a powerful way. Now, there's an important question that we have to answer. What does it mean to do all this for the faith of the gospel? Did you notice that he doesn't say in the faith of the gospel, through the faith of the gospel? He says for the faith of the gospel. Well, I think Paul means to do this so that faith will increase. And I think he has two things in mind. I think he has one, strengthening the faith of the church. If you remember, Paul is encouraged by this church. Everything he remembers about them, he's thankful for. He's joyful about. They're doing well in the faith. But in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says that his prayer for them is that their love may abound more and more. As good as this church is doing, Paul prays for them to abound more. He prays for them to grow. He doesn't pat them on the back and say, keep up the good work. He says, I want more for you. I want more joy. I want more sacrifice. I want more of Christ for you, so I pray for it. Now look at verses 25 through 26 of this verse. Paul has just told this church that he desires to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better than it truly is. But look at what he says. He says in verse 24, and I'm going to back up one verse. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You see how this church's faith is constantly on Paul's mind. He knows who he's standing together with, who he's striving side by side with. So he says, even though it's better to depart and be with Christ, I know that I should be here for you. What faith? So standing and striving together for the faith of the gospel means strengthening the faith of the church in the gospel. But it also means for the spread of the gospel. It means that we want the gospel to move forward, for faith to increase by more people knowing Christ. And I believe this is the case because of verse 8. He talks about them fearing opponents. You see, they would have nothing to be afraid of if they were silent. But this is not a church that's silent. They're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are displaying the power of God in Philippi. And Paul says in chapter 2, verse 15, that the church shines as lights in the world. So our standing together, our striving side by side for the faith of the gospel is for the proclamation of the gospel. It's for the gospel to go forward. It's for Christ's fame to become greater. It's for his name to be raised and lifted and for more people to flood this building We stand together and we strive side by side so that the world will see that Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure. So Paul's exhortation this morning, his aim in life for us is to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ through a unified standing and striving for the faith 
of the gospel. Now, I told you at the beginning that I wanted, that it was my hope. It was my hope that you would see one aim in life that is more valuable than all other aims. That I wanted to set joy before you. And I wanted to reveal that there is something that you can pursue that will give you joy everlasting. I want you to see that that's what this exhortation does. When we live lives worthy of the gospel, we will have joy. Did you notice what is explicitly connected to your joy? This is something that I found out years ago and I long for everyone to see. Grace Church, your joy is explicitly connected to the response of others to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at how much Unity is mentioned in just one verse. How much the body is mentioned. And did you notice how the faith of the church in Philippi is connected to Paul's joy? Look again at Philippians 2.2, right at the beginning. He's going to call for them to live lives worthy of the gospel, to sacrifice for one another. And he injects his call with a, a motivation. Do you see what his motivation is? He says, complete my joy. Paul wants his joy completed by this church living lives worthy of the gospel. And the inference is that his joy is not complete unless they are living wives worthy of the gospel. Our joy is connected to others around us seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. If you want joy to increase, spend your life for the sake of the gospel. And it will. When you see someone come to Christ, when you see someone delight in Jesus, your joy will fill up. If you want complete joy, you will see it through the faith of others increasing. That's what I want you to see. Joy is set before us. Joy now and joy everlasting. So pursue with me. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand together. Strive side by side to see others savor Jesus Christ and watch your joy overflow. Will you pray together with me? Our God in heaven, give us grace this morning. Give us eyes to see Christ. Give us eyes to know that he is better, that he is better than any comfort, than any riches. Give us minds and hearts to declare with one another that Jesus is better. Oh God, make our hearts believe. God, I pray that you would help us as we continue to strive together to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would bring glory and honor to your name. And we pray these things because of what Christ has done. 
Jesus' name I pray. Amen.